Chapter Seventeen of Sir Nigel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Seventeen, The Spaniards on the Sea. day had not yet dawned when Nigel was in the chamber of Chandos, preparing him for his departure, and listening to the last cheery words of advice and direction from his noble master. That same morning, before the sun was halfway up the heaven, the king's great nephew Philippa, bearing within it the most of those present at his banquet the night before, set its huge sail, adorned with the lions and the lilies, and turned its brazen beak for England. Behind it went five smaller cogs, crammed with squires, archers, and men-at-arms. Nigel and his companions lined the ramparts of the castle, and waved their caps as the bluff, burly vessels, with drums beating and trumpets clanging, a hundred knightly pennons streaming from their decks, and the red cross of England over all, rolled slowly out to the open sea. Then, when they had watched them until they were hull down, they turned, with hearts heavy at being left behind, to make ready for their own more distant venture. It took them four days of hard work ere their preparations were complete, for many were the needs of a small force sailing to a strange country. Three ships had been left to them, the cog Thomas of Romney, the Grasse Dieu of Hythe, and the Basilisk of Southampton, into each of which one hundred men were stowed, besides the thirty seamen who formed the crew. In the hold were forty horses, amongst them Pommers, much wearied by his long idleness, and homesick for the slopes of Surrey, where his great limbs might find the work he craved. Then the food and the water, the bow-staves and the sheaves of arrows, the horseshoes, the nails, the hammers, the knives, the axes, the ropes, the vats of hay, the green fodder, and a score of other things were packed aboard. Always by the side of the ships stood the stern young knight Sir Robert, checking, testing, watching and controlling, saying little, for he was a man of few words, but with his eyes, his hands, and if need be his heavy dog-whip, wherever they were wanted. The seamen of the basilisk, being from a free port, had the old feud against the men of the sink-ports, who were looked upon by the other mariners of England as being unduly favoured by the king. A ship of the west country could scarce meet with one from the narrow seas without blood flowing. Hence sprang sudden broils on the quayside, when, with yell and blow, the Thomases and Grasdieus, St. Leonard on their lips and murder in their hearts, would fall upon the basilisks. Then, amid the whirl of cudgels and the clash of knives, would spring the tiger figure of the young leader, lashing mercilessly to right and left, like a tamer among his wolves, until he had beaten them, howling, back to their work. Upon the morning of the fourth day all was ready, and the ropes being cast off, the three little ships were warped down the harbour by their own pinnaces, until they were swallowed up in the swirling folds of a channel mist. Though small in numbers, it was no mean force which Edward had dispatched to succour the hard-pressed English garrisons in Brittany. There was scarce a man among them who was not an old soldier, and their leaders were men of note in council and in war. Knolls flew his flag of the Black Raven aboard the Basilisk. With him were Nigel and his own squire John Hawthorne. Of his hundred men, forty were Yorkshire Dalesmen, and forty were men of Lincoln, all noted archers, with old Watt of Carlisle, a grizzled veteran of border warfare, to lead them. 
Already Aylward, by his skill and strength, had won his way to an under-officership among them, and shared with Long Ned Whittington, a huge North Countryman, the reputation of coming next to famous Wat Carlisle in all that makes an archer. The men-at-arms, too, were war-hardened soldiers, with Black Simon of Norwich, the same who had sailed from Winchelsea, to lead them. With his heart filled with hatred for the French, who had slain all who were dear to him, he followed like a bloodhound over land and sea to any spot where he might glut his vengeance. Such also were the men who sailed in the other ships, Cheshire men from the Welsh borders in the Cog Thomas, and Cumberland men, used to Scottish warfare in the Grasse Sir James Astley hung his shield of cinquefoil ermine over the quarter of the Thomas. Lord Thomas Percy, a cadet of Alnwick, famous already for the high spirit of that house, which for ages was the bar upon the landward gate of England, showed his blue lion rampant as leader of the Grasse Such was the goodly company St. Malo bound, who warped from Calais Harbour to plunge into the thick reek of a channel mist. A slight breeze blew from the eastward, and the high-ended, round-bodied craft rolled slowly down the channel. The mist rose a little at times, so that they had sight of each other dipping and rising upon a sleek, oily sea. But again it would sink down, settling over the top, shrouding the great yard, and finally frothing over the deck, until even the water alongside had vanished from their view, and they were afloat on a little raft in an ocean of vapour. A thin, cold rain was falling, and the archers were crowded under the shelter of the overhanging poop and forecastle, where some spent the hours at dice, some in sleep, and many in trimming their arrows or polishing their weapons. At the farther end, seated on a barrel at a throne of honour, with trays and boxes of feathers around him, was Bartholomew the Bowyer and Fletcher, a fat, bald-headed man, whose task it was to see that every man's tackle was as it should be, and who had the privilege of selling such extras as they might need. A group of archers, with their staves and quivers, filed before him with complaints or requests, while half a dozen of the seniors gathered at his back, and listened with grinning faces to his comments and rebukes. "'Canst not string it?' he was saying to a young bowman. "'Then surely the string is over short, or the stave over long. "'It could not by chance be the fault of thine own baby arms, "'more fit to draw on thy hosen than dress a war-bow. "'Thou lazy lurton, thus is it strung.' "'He seized the stave by the centre in his right hand, "'leaned the end on the inside of his right foot, "'and then, pulling the upper knock down with his left hand, "'slid the eye of the string easily into place. "'Now!' I pray thee to unstring it again, handing it to the bowman. The youth, with an effort, did so, but he was too slow in disengaging his fingers, and the string, sliding down with a snap from the upper knock, caught and pinched them sorely against the stave. A roar of laughter, like the clap of a wave, swept down the deck as the luckless bowman danced and wrung his hand. Serve thee well right, thou readless fool, growled the old bowyer. So fine a bow is wasted in such hands. How now, Samkin? I can teach you little of your trade, I trow. Here is a bow dressed as it should be, but it would, as you say, be the better for a white band to mark the true knocking-point in the centre of this red wrapping of silk. Leave it, and I will tend to it anon. And you what? A fresh head on yonder steel? Lord, that a man should carry four trades under one hat, and be bowyer, fletcher, stringer, and headmaker. Four men's work for old Bartholomew, and one man's pay— "'Nay, say no more about that,' 
growled an old wizened bowman, with a brown parchment skin and little beady eyes. "'It is better in these days to mend a bow than to bend one. You, who never looked a Frenchman in the face, are pricked off for ninepence a day, and I, who have fought five stricken fields, can earn but fourpence.' "'It is in my mind, John of Tuxford, that you have looked in the face of more pots of mead than Frenchmen,' said the old bowyer. "'I am slinking from dawn to night, while you are guzzling in an ale-stake.' Uh, "'How now, youngster? Overbowed. Put your bow in the tiller. It draws at sixty pounds. Not a pennyweight too much for a man of your inches. Lay more body to it, lad, and it will come to you. If your bow be not stiff, how can you hope for a twenty-score flight? Feathers? Aye. Plenty, and of the best. Here. Peacock at a groat each.' Surely a dandy archer like you, Tom Beverley, with gold earrings in your ears, would have no feather but peacocks. So the shaft fly straight, I care not of the feather, said the bowman, a tall young Yorkshireman, counting out pennies on the palm of his horny hand. Grey goose feathers are but a farthing. These on the left are a half penny, for they are of the wild goose, and the second feather of a fenny goose is worth more than the pinion of a tame one. These in the brass tray are dropped feathers, and a dropped feather is better than a plucked one. Buy a score of these, lad, and cut them saddle-backed or swine-backed, the one for a dead shaft and the other for a smooth flyer, and no man in the company will swing a better-fletched quiver over his shoulder. It chanced that the opinion of the bowyer on this and other points differed from that of Long Ned of Whittington, a surly straw-bearded Yorkshireman, who had listened with a sneering face to this counsel. Now he broke in suddenly upon the bowyer's talk. "'You would do better to sell bows and to try to teach others how to use them,' he said. "'For indeed, Bartholomew, that head of thine has no more sense within it than it has hairs without. "'If you had drawn string for as many months as I have years, "'you would know that a straight-cut feather flies smoother than a swine-backed, "'and pity it is that these young bowmen have none to teach them better.' "'This attack upon his professional knowledge touched the old bowyer on the raw. "'His fat face became suffused with blood, "'and his eyes glared with fury as he turned upon the archer. "'You seven-foot barrel of lies!' he cried. All hallows be my aid, and I will teach you to open your slabbing mouth against me. Pluck forth your sword, and stand out on yonder deck, that we may see who is the man of us twain. May I never twirl a shaft over my thumbnail if I do not put Bartholomew's mark upon your thick head. A score of rough voices joined at once in the quarrel, some upholding the bowyer, and others taking the part of the north countryman. A red-headed dalesman snatched up a sword, but was felled by a blow from the fist of his neighbour. Instantly, with a buzz like a swarm of angry hornets, the bowmen were on the deck, but ere a blow was struck, Knowles was amongst them, with granite face and eyes of fire. "'Stand apart, I say. I will warrant you enough fighting to cool your blood ere you see England once more. Loring, Hawthorne, cut any man down who raises his hand.' "'Have you what to say, you fox-haired rascal?' He thrust his face within two inches of that of the red man who had first seized his sword. The fellow shrank back, cowed from the fierce eyes. Now stint your noise, all of you, and stretch your long ears. Trumpeter, blow once more. A bugle call had been sounded every quarter of an hour so as to keep in touch with the other two vessels who were invisible in the fog. Now the high, clear note rang out once more, the call of a fierce sea creature to its mates, but no answer came back from the thick wall which pent them in. Again and again they called, and again and again, with bated breath, they waited for an answer. "'Where is the shipman?' asked Knowles. "'What is your name, fellow? Do you dare call yourself Master Mariner?' "'My name is Nat Dennis, fair sir,' 
said the grey-bearded old seaman. "'It is thirty years since first I showed my cartel and blue trumpet for a crew at the watergate of Southampton. If any man may call himself Master Mariner, it is surely I. Where are our two ships?' "'Nay, sir, who can say in this fog?' "'Fellow, it was your place to hold them together.' "'I have but the eyes God gave me, fair sir. They cannot see through a cloud.' Had it been fair, I, who am a soldier, could have kept them in company. Since it was foul, we look to you, who are called a mariner, to do so. You have not done it. You have lost two of my ships ere the venture is begun. Nay, fair sir, I pray you to consider— Enough words, said Knowles sternly. Words will not give me back my two hundred men. Unless I find them before I come to St. Marlow, I swear by St. Wilfred of Ripon that it will be an evil day for you. Enough. Go forth and do what you may. For five hours, with a light breeze behind them, they lurched through the heavy fog, the cold rain still matting their beards and shining on their faces. Sometimes they could see a circle of tossing water for a bowshot or so in each direction, and then the wreaths would crawl in upon them once more and bank them thickly round. They had long ceased to blow the trumpet for their missing comrades, but had hopes, when clear weather came, to find them still in sight. By the shipman's reckoning, they were now about midway between the two shores. Nigel was leaning against the bulwarks, his thoughts away in the dingle at Cosford and out on the heather-clad slopes of Hindhead, when something struck his ear. It was a thin, clear clang of metal, peeling out high above the dull murmur of the sea, the creak of the boom and the flap of the sail. He listened, and again it was borne to his ear. Hark, my lord! he said to Sir Robert. Is there not a sound in the fog? They both listened together with sidelong heads. Then it rang clearly forth once more, but this time in another direction. It had been on the bow. Now it was on the quarter. Again it sounded, and again. Now it had moved to the other bow. Now back to the quarter again. Now it was near, and now so far that it was but a faint tinkle on the ear. By this time every man on board, seamen, archers, and men-at-arms, were crowding the sides of the vessel. All round them there were noises in the darkness, and yet the wall of fog lay wet against their very faces. And the noises were such as were strange to their ears, always the same high musical clashing. The old shipman shook his head and crossed himself. "'In thirty years upon the waters I have never heard the like,' said he. "'The devil is ever loose in the fog.' Well is he named the Prince of Darkness. A wave of panic passed over the vessel, and these rough and hardy men, who feared no mortal foe, shook with terror at the shadows of their own minds. They stared into the cloud with blanched faces and fixed eyes, as though each instant some fearsome shape might break in upon them. And as they stared, there came a gust of wind. For a moment the fog-bank rose, and a circle of ocean lay before them. It was covered with vessels. On all sides they lay thick upon its surface. They were huge carracks, high-ended and portly, with red sides and bulwarks carved and crusted with gold. Each had one great sail set, and was driving down channel on the same course as the basilisk. Their decks were thick with men, and from their high poops came the weird clashing which filled the air. For one moment they lay there, this wondrous fleet, surging slowly forward, framed in grey vapour. The next, the clouds closed in, and they had vanished from view. There was a long hush, and then a buzz of excited voices. "'The Spaniards!' 
cried a dozen bowmen and sailors. "'I should have known it,' said the shipman. "'I call to mind on the Biscay coast how they clash their cymbals "'after the fashion of the heathen moor with whom they fight. "'But what would you have me do, fair sir? "'If the fog rises, we are all dead men.' "'There were thirty ships at the least,' said Knowles, with a moody brow. "'If we have seen them, I trow that they have also seen us. "'They will lay us aboard.' "'Nay, fair sir, it is in my mind that our ship is lighter and faster than theirs. "'If the fog hold another hour, we should be through them.' "'Stand to your arms!' yelled Knowles. "'Stand to your arms! They are on us!' The basilisk had indeed been spied from the Spanish admiral's ship before the fog closed down. With so light a breeze and such a fog, he could not hope to find her under sail. But by an evil chance, not a bowshot from the great Spanish carrack, was a low galley, thin and swift, with oars which could speed her against wind or tide. She also had seen the basilisk, and it was to her that the Spanish leader shouted his orders. For a few minutes she hunted through the fog, and then sprang out of it like a lean, stealthy beast upon its prey. It was the sight of the long, dark shadow gliding after them which had brought that wild shout of alarm from the lips of the English knight. In another instant the starboard oars of the galley had been shipped, the sides of the two vessels grated together, and a stream of swarthy, red-capped Spaniards were swarming up the sides of the basilisk, and dropped with yells of triumph upon her deck. For a moment it seemed as if the vessel was captured without a blow being struck, for the men of the English ship had run wildly in all directions to look for their arms. Scores of archers might be seen under the shadow of the forecastle and the poop, bending their bow-staves to string them with the cords from their waterproof cases. Others were scrambling over saddles and barrels and cases in wild search of their quivers. Each, as he came upon his arrows, pulled out a few to lend to his less fortunate comrades. In mad haste the men-at-arms also were feeling and grasping in the dark corners, picking up steel caps which would not fit them, hurling them down on the deck, and snatching eagerly at any swords or spears that came their way. The centre of the ship was held by the Spaniards, and having slain all who stood before them, they were pressing up to either end, before they were made to understand that it was no fat sheep, but a most fierce old wolf which they had taken by the ears. If the lesson was late, it was the more thorough. Attacked on both sides and hopelessly outnumbered, the Spaniards, who had never doubted that this little craft was a merchant ship, were cut off to the last man. It was no fight, but a butchery. In vain the survivors ran screaming prayers to the saints, and threw themselves down into the galley alongside. It also had been riddled with arrows from the poop of the basilisk, and both the crew on the deck and the galley slaves and the outriggers at either side lay dead in rows under the overwhelming shower from above. From stem to rudder every foot of her was furrowed with arrows. It was but a floating coffin, piled with dead and dying men, which wallowed in the waves behind them as the basilisk lurched onward and left her in the fog. In their first rush onto the basilisk, the Spaniards had seized six of the crew and four unarmed archers. Their throats had been cut and their bodies tossed overboard. Now the Spaniards, who littered the deck, wounded and dead, were thrust over the side in the same fashion. One ran down into the hold and had to be hunted and killed, squealing under the blows like a rat in the darkness. Within half an hour no sign was left of this grim meeting in the fog, save for the crimson splashes upon bulwark and decks. The archers, flushed and merry, were unstringing their bows once more, for in spite of the water-glue the damp air took the strength from the cords. 
Some were hunting about for arrows which might have stuck in board, and some tying up small injuries received in the scuffle. But an anxious shadow still lingered upon the face of Sir Robert, and he peered fixedly about him through the fog. "'Go among the archers, Hawthorne,' he said to his squire. "'Charge them on their lives to make no sound. "'You also, Loring, go to the afterguard and say the same to them. "'We are lost if one of these great ships should spy us.' "'For an hour, with bated breath, they stole through the fleet, "'still hearing the cymbals clashing all round them, "'for in this way the Spaniards held themselves together. "'Once the wild music came from above their very prow, "'and so warned them to change their course. "'Once also a huge vessel loomed from an instant upon their quarter, "'but they turned two points away from her, and she blurred and vanished. "'Soon the cymbals were but a distant tinkling, "'and at last they died gradually away. "'It is none too soon,' said the old shipman, "'pointing to a yellowish tint in the haze above them. "'See yonder, it is the sun which wins through. "'It will be here anon. "'Ah!' said I not so. "'A sickly sun, no larger and far dimmer than the moon, "'had indeed shown its face, with cloud-wreaths smoking across it. "'As they looked up, it waxed larger and brighter before their eyes. "'A yellow halo spread around it. "'One ray broke through, and then a funnel of gold light poured down upon them, "'widening swiftly at the base.' A minute later they were sailing on a clear blue sea, with an azure cloud-flecked sky above their heads, and such a scene beneath it as each of them would carry in his memory while memory remained. They were in mid-channel. The white and green coasts of Picardy and of Kent lay clear upon either side of them. The wide channel stretched in front, deepening from the light blue beneath their prow to purple on the far skyline. Behind them was that thick bank of cloud from which they had just burst. It lay like a grey wall from east to west, and through it were breaking the high shadowy forms of the ships of Spain. Four of them had already emerged, their red bodies, gilded sides and painted sails shining gloriously in the evening sun. Every instant a fresh golden spot grew out of the fog, which blazed like a star for an instant and then surged forward, to show itself as the brazen beak of the great red vessel which bore it. Looking back, the whole bank of cloud was broken by the widespread line of noble ships which were bursting through it. The basilisk lay a mile or more in front of them, and two miles clear of their wing. Five miles further off, in the direction of the French coast, two other small ships were running down the channel. A cry of joy from Robert Knowles and a hearty prayer of gratitude to the saints from the old shipmen hailed them as their missing comrades, the Cog Thomas and the Grasse Dieu. But fair as was the view of their lost friends and wondrous the appearance of the Spanish ships, it was not on those that the eyes of the men of the basilisk were chiefly bent. A greater sight lay before them, a sight which brought them clustering to the forecastle with eager eyes and pointing fingers. The English fleet was coming forth from the Winchelsea coast. Already before the fog lifted, a fast galleass had brought the news down channel that the Spanish were on the sea, and the King's fleet was under way. Now their long array of sails, gay with the coats and colours of the towns which had furnished them, lay bright against the Kentish coast from Dungeness Point to Rye. Nine and twenty ships were there from Southampton, Shoreham, Winchelsea, Hastings, Rye, Hythe, Romney, Folkestone, Deal, Dover, and Sandwich, 
with their great sails slewed round to catch the wind they ran out whilst the spanish like the gallant foes that they have ever been turned their heads landward to meet them with flaunting banners and painted sails blaring trumpets and clashing cymbals the two glittering feats dipping and rising on the long channel swell drew slowly together king edward had been lying all day in his great ship the philippa a mile out from the camber sands waiting for the coming of the spaniards above the huge sail which bore the royal arms flew the red cross of england along the bulwarks were shown the shields of forty knights the flower of english chivalry and as many pennons floated from the deck the high ends of the ship glittered with the weapons of the men-at-arms and the waist was crammed with archers from time to time a crash of nakers and a blare of trumpets burst from the royal ship and was answered by her great neighbours the lion on which the black prince flew his flag the christopher with the earl of suffolk the salle du roi of robert de namur and the grasse marie of sir thomas holland farther off lay the white swan bearing the arms of mowbray the palmer of deal flying the black head of audley and the kentish man under the lord beauchamp the rest lay anchored but ready at the mouth of the winchelsea creek the king sat upon a keg in the forepart of his ship with little john of richmond who was no more than a schoolboy perched upon his knee edward was clad in the black velvet jacket which was his favourite garb and wore a small brown beaver hat with a white plume at the side a rich cloak of fur turned up with miniver drooped from his shoulders behind him were a score of his knights brilliant in silks and sarsenets some seated on an upturned boat and some swinging their legs from the bulwark in front stood john chandos in a party-coloured jupon one foot raised upon the anchor stock picking at the strings of his guitar and singing a song which he had learned at marienburg when he last helped the teutonic knights against the heathen the king his knights and even the archers in the waist below them laughed at the merry lilt and joined lustily in the chorus while the men of the neighbouring ships leaned over the side to hearken to the deep chant rolling over the waters but there came a sudden interruption to the song a sharp harsh shout came down from the lookout stationed in the circular top at the end of the mast i spy a sail two sails he cried john bunce the king's shipman shaded his eyes and stared at the long fog-bank which shrouded the northern channel chandos with his fingers over the strings of his guitar the king the knights all gazed in the same direction two small dark shapes had burst forth and then after some minutes a third surely they are the spaniards said the king nay sire the seaman answered the spaniards are greater ships and are painted red i know not what these may be but i could hazard a guess cried chandos surely they are the three ships with my own men on their way to brittany ah you have hit it john said the king but look i pray you what in the name of the virgin is that four brilliant stars of flashing light had shone out from different points of the cloud-bank the next instant as many tall ships had swooped forth into the sunshine a fierce shout rang from the king's ship and was taken up all down the line until the whole coast from dungeness to winchelsea echoed the warlike greeting the king sprang up with a joyous face the game is afoot my friends said he dress john dress walter quick all of you squires bring the harness let each tend to himself for the time is short a strange sight it was to see these forty noble knights tearing off their clothes and littering the deck with velvets and satins 
whilst the squire of each, as busy as an ostler before a race, stooped and pulled and strained and riveted, fastening the bassinets, the leg-pieces, the front and back plates, until the silken courtier had become a man of steel. When their work was finished, there stood a stern group of warriors where the light dandies had sung and jested round Sir John's guitar. Below, in orderly silence, the archers were mustering under their officers and taking their allotted stations. A dozen had swarmed up to their hazardous post in the little tower in the tops. "'Bring wine, Nicholas,' cried the king. "'Gentlemen, ere you close your visors, I pray you to take a last rouse with me. You will be dry enough, I promise you, before your lips are free once more.' "'To what shall we drink, John?' "'To the men of Spain,' said Chandos, his sharp face peering like a gaunt bird through the gap in his helmet. "'May their hearts be stout and their spirits high this day.' "'Well said, John,' cried the king. The knights laughed joyously as they drank. "'Now, fair sirs, let each to his post. I am warden here on the forecastle. Do you, John, take charge of the afterguard? Walter, James, William, Fitzalan, Goldsborough, Reginald, you will stay with me.' "'John, you may pick whom you will, and the others will bide with the archers. "'Now bear straight at the centre, Master Shipman. "'Ere yonder sun sets, we will bring a red ship back as a gift to our ladies, "'or never look upon a lady's face again.' "'The art of sailing into a wind had not yet been invented, "'nor was there any fore-and-aft canvas, save for small headsails, "'with which a vessel could be turned. "'Hence the English feet had to take a long slant down channel to meet their enemies.' But as the Spaniards, coming before the wind, were equally anxious to engage, there was the less delay. With stately pomp and dignity the two great fleets approached. It chanced that one fine carrack had outstripped its consorts, and came sweeping along, all red and gold with a fringe of twinkling steel, a good half-mile before the fleet. Edward looked at her with a kindling eye, for indeed she was a noble sight, with the blue water creaming under her gilded prow. "'This is a most worthy and debonair vessel, Master Bunce,' said he to the shipman beside him. "'I would fain have a tilt with her. I pray you to hold her straight, that we may bear her down.' "'If I hold her straight, then one or other must sink, and it may be both,' the seaman answered. "'I doubt not that with the help of Our Lady we shall do our part,' said the king. "'Hold her straight, Master Shipman, as I have told you.' Now the two vessels were within arrow-flight, and the bolts from the crossbowmen pattered upon the English ship. These short, thick devil's darts were everywhere humming like great wasps through the air, crashing against the bulwarks, beating upon the deck, ringing loudly on the armour of the knights, or with a soft, muffled thud, sinking to the socket in a victim. The bowmen along either side of the Philippa had stood motionless, waiting for their orders, but now there was a sharp shout from their leader, and every string twanged together. The air was full of their harping, together with the swish of the arrows, the long-drawn keening of the bowmen, and the short, deep bark of the under-officers. "'Steady! Steady! Loose steady! Shoot wholly together! Twelve score paces! Ten score! Now eight! Shoot wholly together!' Their gruff shouts broke through the high, shrill cry, like the deep roar of a wave through the howl of the wind. As the two great ships hurtled together, the Spaniard turned away a few points, so that the blow should be a glancing one. Nonetheless, it was terrific. A dozen men in the tops of the carrack were balancing a huge stone with the intention of dropping it over on the English deck. With a scream of horror, they saw the mast cracking beneath them. Over it went, slowly at first, then faster, until, with a crash, it came down on its side, sending them flying like stones from a sling far out into the sea. A swathe of crushed bodies lay across the deck where the mast had fallen. But the English ship had not escaped unscathed 
Her mast held, it is true, but the mighty shock not only stretched every man flat upon the deck, but had shaken a score of those who lined her sides into the sea. One bowman was hurled from the top, and his body fell with a dreadful crash at the very side of the prostrate king upon the forecastle. Many were thrown down with broken arms and legs from the high castles at either end into the waist of the ship. Worst of all, the seams had been opened by the crash, and the water was gushing in at a dozen places. But these were men of experience and of discipline, men who had already fought together by sea and by land, so that each knew his place and his duty. Those who could staggered to their feet, and helped up a score or more of knights who were rolling and clashing in the scuppers, unable to rise for the weight of their armour. The bowmen formed up as before. The seamen ran to the gaping seams with oakum and with tar. In ten minutes order had been restored, and the Philippa, though shaken and weakened, was ready for battle once more. The king was glaring round him like a wounded boar. "'Grapple my ship with that!' he cried, pointing to the crippled Spaniard, "'for I would have possession of her.' But already the breeze had carried them past it, and a dozen Spanish ships were bearing down full upon them. "'We cannot win back to her, lest we show our flank to these others,' said the shipman. "'Let her go her way,' cried the knights. "'You shall have better than her.' "'By St. George, you speak the truth,' said the king, "'for she is ours when we have time to take her. "'These also seem very worthy ships which are drawing up to us, "'and I pray you, Master Shipman, that you will have a tilt with the nearest.' A great carrack was within a bowshot of them and crossing their bows. Bunce looked up at his mast, and he saw that already it was shaken and drooping. Another blow, and it would be over the side, and his ship a helpless log upon the water. He jammed his helm round, therefore, and ran his ship alongside the Spaniard, throwing out his hooks and iron chains as he did so. They, no less eager, grappled the Philippa both fore and aft, and the two vessels, linked tightly together, surged slowly over the long blue rollers. Over their bulwarks hung a cloud of men locked together in a desperate struggle, sometimes surging forward onto the deck of the Spaniard, sometimes recoiling back onto the king's ship, reeling this way and that, with the swords flickering like silver flames above them, while the long-drawn cry of rage and agony swelled up like a wolf's howl to the calm blue heaven above them. But now ship after ship of the English had come up, each throwing its iron over the nearest Spaniard and striving to board her high red sides. Twenty ships were drifting in furious single combat after the manner of the Philippa, until the whole surface of the sea was covered with a succession of these desperate duels. The dismasted carrack, which the king's ship had left behind it, had been carried by the Earl of Suffolk's Christopher, and the water was dotted with the heads of her crew. An English ship had been sunk by a huge stone discharged from an engine, and her men also were struggling in the waves, none having leisure to lend them a hand. A second English ship was caught between two of the Spanish vessels, and overwhelmed by a rush of boarders, so that not a man of her was left alive. On the other hand, Mowbray and Audley had each taken the carracks which were opposed to them, and the battle in the centre, after swaying this way and that, was turning now in favour of the islanders. The Black Prince, with the Lion, the Grasse Marie, and four other ships, had swept round to turn the Spanish flank. But the movement was seen, and the Spaniards had ten ships with which to meet it, one of them their great carrack, the Santiago de Compostela. To this ship the prince had attached his little cog, and strove desperately to board her. But her side was so high and the defence so desperate that his men could never get beyond her bulwarks, but were hurled down again and again, with a clang and clash to the deck beneath. Her side bristled with crossbowmen, who shot straight down onto the packed waist of the lion, so that the dead lay there in heaps. 
but the most dangerous of all was a swarthy black-bearded giant in the tops, who crouched so that none could see him, but rising every now and then, with a huge lump of iron between his hands, hurled it down with such force that nothing would stop it. Again and again these ponderous bolts crashed through the deck, and hurtled down into the bottom of the ship, starting the planks and shattering all that came in their way. The prince, clad in that dark armour which gave him his name, was directing the attack from the poop, when the shipman rushed wildly up to him with fear on his face. "'Sire!' he cried. "'The ship may not stand against these blows. A few more will sink her. Already the water floods inboard.' The prince looked up, and as he did so the shaggy beard showed once more, and two brawny arms swept downward. A great slug, whizzing down, beat a gaping hole in the deck, and fell rending and writhing into the hold below. The master mariner tore his grizzled hair. "'Another leak!' he cried. I pray to St. Leonard to bear us up this day. Twenty of my shipmen are bailing with buckets, but the water rises on them fast. The vessel may not float another hour. The prince had snatched a crossbow from one of his attendants, and levelled it at the Spaniard's tops. At the very instant when the seaman stood erect with a fresh bar in his hands, the bolt took him full in the face, and his body fell forward over the parapet, hanging there, head downward. A howl of exultation burst from the English at the sight, answered by a wild roar of anger from the Spaniards. A seaman had run from the lion's hold, and whispered in the ear of the shipman. He turned an ashen face upon the prince. "'It is even as I say, sire. The ship is sinking beneath our feet,' he cried. "'The more need that we should gain another,' said he. "'Sir Henry Stokes, Sir Thomas Stoughton, William, John of Clifton, here lies our road. Advance my banner, Thomas de Mohun. On, and the day is ours.' By a desperate scramble, a dozen men, the prince at their head, gained a footing on the edge of the Spaniard's deck. Some slashed furiously to clear a space, others hung over, clutching the rail with one hand, and pulling up their comrades from below. Every instant that they could hold their own, their strength increased, till twenty had become thirty, and thirty forty, when of a sudden the newcomers, still reaching forth to their comrades below, saw the deck beneath them reel and vanish in a swirling sheet of foam. The prince's ship had foundered. A yell went up from the Spaniards as they turned furiously upon the small band who had reached their deck. Already the prince and his men had carried the poop, and from that high station they beat back their swarming enemies. But crossbow darts pelted and thudded among their ranks, till a third of their number were stretched upon the planks. Lined across the deck, they could hardly keep an unbroken front to the leaping, surging crowd who pressed upon them. Another rush, or another after that, must assuredly break them for these dark men of Spain, hardened by an endless struggle with the Moors, were fierce and stubborn fighters. But hark to this sudden roar upon the farther side of them. St. George! St. George! A knolls to the rescue! A small craft had run alongside, and sixty men had swarmed on the deck of the Santiago. Caught between two fires, the Spaniards wavered and broke. The fight became a massacre. Down from the poop sprang the prince's men. Up from the waist rushed the newcomers. There were five dreadful minutes of blows and screams and prayers, with struggling figures clinging to the bulwarks and sullen splashes into the water below. Then it was over, and a crowd of weary, overstrained men leaned panting upon their weapons, or lay breathless and exhausted upon the deck of the captured Carrick. The prince had pulled up his visor and lowered his beaver. He smiled proudly as he gazed around him and wiped his streaming face. "'Where is the shipman?' he asked. "'Let him lead us against another ship.' "'Nay, sire, the shipman and all his men have sunk in the lion,' said Thomas de Mohun, a young knight of the West Country who carried the standard. 
"'We have lost our ship and the half of our following. "'I fear that we can fight no more.' "'It matters the less, since the day is already ours,' said the prince, looking over the sea. "'My noble father's royal banner flies upon yonder Spaniard. "'Mowbray, Audley, Suffolk, Beauchamp, Namur, Tracy, Stafford Arundel, "'each has his flag over a scarlet carrick, even as mine floats over this.' See, yonder squadron is already far beyond our reach. But surely we owe thanks to you who came at so perilous a moment to our aid. Your face I have seen, and your coat-armour also, young sir, though I cannot lay my tongue to your name. Let me know that I may thank you. He had turned to Nigel, who stood flushed and joyous at the head of the borders from the basilisk. I am but a squire, sire, and can claim no thanks, for there is nothing that I have done. Here is our leader." The prince's eyes fell upon the shield charged with the black raven and the stern young face of him who bore it. "'Sir Robert Knowles,' said he, "'I had thought you were on your way to Brittany.' "'I was so, sir, when I had the fortune to see this battle as I passed.' The prince laughed. "'It would indeed be too much to ask, Robert, that you should keep on your course when much honour was to be gained so close to you. But now I pray you that you will come back with us to Winchelsea, for well I know that my father would fain thank you for what you have done this day.' but Robert Knowles shook his head. "'I have your father's command, sire, and without his order I may not go against it. Our people are hard-pressed in Brittany, and it is not for me to linger on the way. I pray you, sire, if you must needs mention me to the king, crave his pardon that I should have broken my journey thus.' "'You are right, Robert. God speed you on your way, and I would that I were sailing under your banner, for I see clearly that you will take your people where they may worshipfully win worship. Perchance I also may be in Brittany before the year is past.' The prince turned to the task of gathering his weary people together, and the basilisks passed over the side once more, and dropped down on to their own little ship. They poled her off from the captured Spaniard, and set their sail with their prow for the south. Far ahead of them were their two consorts, beating towards them in the hope of giving help, while down channel were a score of Spanish ships, with a few of the English vessels hanging upon their skirts. The sun lay low on the water and its level beams glowed upon the scarlet and gold of fourteen great carracks, each flying the cross of St. George, and towering high above the cluster of English ships, which, with brave waving of flags and blaring of music, were moving slowly toward the Kentish coast. End of chapter 17